Welcome to On The Verge. This podcast will highlight interviews from entrepreneurs, musicians, and professional golfers. It will center around what tools they have used to help them reach their dreams, how they use golf to further their career, whether it be for escape from the rigors of their profession or to build more business, and how the communitas of wine, music, and golf enrich their lives. This is all about the enjoyment of life, rising above the struggles, and stretching past the best to be better every day. On the Verge. On the Verge is presented by Callaway Golf. Big Bertha. It's an iconic name. Some of the longest and straightest clubs in all of golf. You know that any club that gets to call itself Big Bertha is going to push the boundaries of innovation to give you unbelievable distance. Well, now distance is going to come a whole heck of a lot easier because the new Big Bertha irons are Callaway's easiest to launch distance irons ever. There's some crazy science behind these irons. They're powered by a suspended energy core, a totally new construction never before seen in golf. This revolutionary core design delivers easy launch, long, consistent distance with incredible sound and feel. It's unlike any iron they've ever created. We're talking serious innovation. But hey, I'm no scientist or engineer. The folks at Callaway did all the hard stuff. I just know it's easy when I see it and feel it. And you will too. With Big Bertha Irons, you're going to launch the ball higher and farther and easier than ever. Get big time distance now. Experience Big Bertha Irons today at your local golf shop or at CallawayGolf.com. Welcome to On the Verge. Today's special guest is the former CEO of Franklin American Mortgage. He's done so much for the city of Nashville when it comes to golf, when it comes to sports, our bowl game, amazing uh, giver and one of the nicest guys I know, Dan Crockett. Dan, how are you today, buddy? Pretty good, Verge. Good to be here, buddy. Well, I'm, I'm fascinated. You have an amazing story that I think is important to pass on. You're one of the greatest athletes ever to play at Lambeth, and you've played in you big played power, one. Big powerful Lambeth University. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's fascinating because you, you were two sports, right? right. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested to hear how sports – and competing tied into your success from the ground up at Franklin American Mortgage to, you know, recently selling it. And now you're kind of just freelancing a little bit. But talk to us about how sport cultivated the mindset that it took for you to take that company from the ground up to something super special. Well, you know, I think sports, uh, you know, I was a football, baseball guy, basketball until I was probably a sophomore in high school. I think the, the fundamentals of athletics really transcend all institutions. The fundamentals that you learn in team sports in particularly, um, you know, playing for the guy next to you, self-discipline, uh, overcoming adversity, integrity, character, hard work, effort. Uh, you know, I hear coaches talking about strain, especially in football, just that extra strain that you have to find in order to be a champion and be a winner. Uh, and I think all those lessons that I learned uh, from being in team sports, really, you know, those things are applicable across the board institutionally, no matter whether you're in government, uh, public companies, private companies, uh, you know, in a school setting, uh, you know, all those fundamentals, you know, really apply. And I think, you know, one of the biggest things that happened with me early on was, you know, losing my brother to leukemia. Uh, he was 11. I was five. I was his bone marrow donor. 
Uh, I recently have gone back out to Seattle, Washington, where uh, the transplant actually took place and went to the place where my parents and I lived and went to the hospital, which is no longer a hospital, but I got to kind of go and revisit uh, that part of my life, which was 45, 46 years ago now. Uh, But I think that, you know, I kind of grew up pretty quickly going through that. Uh, And my brother was a really good athlete. I have five brothers, and they were all tremendous athletes. Uh, My mother was a really good athlete, grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina, played uh, college basketball and tennis. Uh, My father was an asthmatic. He was a Nashvillian. Uh, but he was pretty athletic too. He could, didn't play a lot of sports because of his asthma, but he was a weightlifter. And, uh, so it was kind of in our blood. So it was natural for us to move into, uh, team sports. And, uh, what I learned, you know, from the time I was six till I was 23, uh, you know, all those lessons that you learn, uh, I used those and, and really applied that to Franklin American, uh, you know, I think oneness of mission, I, I think at Franklin American, we always had the idea that uh, we wanted to be really, really good at one thing. We didn't want to be a jack of all. We wanted to be a master of one. Uh, we weren't fra- afraid to compete. Uh, we were going to love our customer. We were going to provide unparalleled service. Uh, we were going to be competitively priced, but not always the best price on the street, uh, but very competitive. And we taught our salespeople and trained them that they had to be the difference maker. Uh, just like in a football game or, or a baseball game with a good pitcher or a great quarterback or a great running back, uh, when the game is on the line, you turn to your leaders and they have to be the difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can teach, you can practice, you can scheme, you can do all those things. Uh, but at the end of the day, the Jimmys and Joes are the ones that win. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we kind of took that approach with our sales force uh, in teaching them that, you know, hey, you've got to be the difference maker. If we're a quarter point out on this or that or this deal or that deal, uh, you've got to be the one that makes that difference. You've got to be the one that says, hey, do business with me because I'm me and Franklin American is who we are and we're going to be here. We're going to be consistently productive for you, uh, not only on the price and product side, uh, but from a service standpoint. And um, so... Yeah, I mean, I, I can't say enough about what I learned. Everything I really know about being a leader, I learned from team sports. Interesting. How did you get involved in the lending world? What steered you when you got out of college to head in that direction? Was there is a as a family? Was there a family business or family in that in that world, or was just something? No, you I, felt I just like? kind of fell into it. Uh, my father was retired. Uh, my dad, he was born in 1926. I think he was in his mid-40s when I was born. And being the second youngest of a family of six, mm-hmm. you know, you, you kind of have kids for a while. So yeah. uh, I think there's 11 and a half years between me and my oldest, or the youngest and the oldest. Um, but, uh, you know, I just kind of fell into it. Uh, my mother sold real estate for a number of years and had a daycare center uh, shortly after my brother passed for a number of years. And, uh but I just, I, I kind of, I got a business degree from Lambeth, which had a very, very good business school. Uh, their standardized test scores uh, rank very high, even at the, at the edge of the Ivy Leagues. Uh, so it was a very good school. I had a great professor there, very small. I think I had eight or nine people in my junior and senior courses in my degree there. So I had 
you know, a lot of attention, which is good and bad. If you're a college kid, you don't necessarily <laughs> want all that attention. Because uh, so I true. couldn't miss more than two classes unexcused or I was going to get dropped a letter grade. Uh, so I couldn't hide. Yeah. Uh, but he, Wilburn Lane was his name. He's still, I think he may have retired, but he left Lambeth and went over to Union University, which is there in Jackson, another great school. Um, but I graduated and I uh, was mowing grass, uh, which is what I did from the time I was probably 17. I uh, started a little more uh, mowing company when I was in college, so I was playing two sports, going to school, and mowing grass. Uh, I can remember mowing, you know, 10, 12 yards a day and then going to lift and getting ready for fall for football in the gym at night and then doing it all over again the next day. And uh, So graduated, moved back to Nashville, um, was mowing grass for the guy that I mowed for in the summer, uh, and I was a little down. I didn't really know what to do with myself. Um, I had, you know, couldn't play ball anymore. Uh, you know, I had some pretty significant injuries. Uh, one really significant injury right before my senior year. I got a medical red shirt and was able to come back and play and made all-conference and all-American that next year as well. But I wasn't quite the same. Mm -hmm. I'd, I'd lost a little speed because I, I broke my tibia in half. Uh, had a rod and four screws put in and was in the hospital for eight days and on crutches for two months and long rehab. But um, So I was just kind of trying to find my way, really didn't know what I wanted to do. And uh, quite frankly, at that time in my life, I was probably as close to God as I'd ever been because I was really just kind of searching for what I wanted to do. Sure. And um, I had a few opportunities, uh, kind of got my resume back out there uh, while I was still mowing. And uh, the lady doing my resume was across the hall from a startup mortgage broker shop. I didn't even know what a mortgage broker was. I didn't know what a mortgage was. Uh, to me, when I thought about mortgage, I thought about it's a wonderful life and, uh, you know, Mr. Potter trying to take everybody's house, you know, the Christmas movie, <laughs> uh, trying to take everybody's house and run the city or whatever. So um, she said, hey, you know, this is 1993. And uh, she said, this is a really hot business and uh, a lot going on. Interest rates were at that time as low as they'd been in 50 years, which back then it was about six and a half on a 30 year, which today would be astronomically high. <laughs> no but back then they were coming off 18% interest rates in the early eighties, all the inflation from the Carter administration and Reagan coming in and trying to do his thing. But, uh, you know, there's a lot going on and, uh, you know, just kind of praying about it and thinking about what was best for me. I just kind of felt like, and on paper, uh, it wasn't really the best opportunity. Uh, I had a couple GA offers to go and coach football uh, at some different places. And uh, First American Bank, the old First American Bank, mm -hmm. I was talking to them, a company called Service Master out of Atlanta, uh, which is a very big conglomerate. Uh, I think they've been acquired probably two or three times by different entities since. But um, I just felt like this was the right place for me to go. <laughs> so uh, I just kind of fell into it. And I uh, went to work for those guys, and it was a startup. They, I, I originated, processed, cleared all the conditions, and closed the very first loan the entity ever did. Wow. Uh, and it was called Merchants Home Mortgage at the time. Uh, and then it ended up buying it in uh, September of 94. So I, I just, just kind of fell into it. That's awesome. Well, one of the things that I think that you gleaned off of team sport and competing at sport 
that paid huge dividends for you later was discipline. Because when the, the, the real estate boom that trended to a bubble that exploded, you know, a countrywide ex- really exposed the, the, the death of the largest recession depression since the original depression. But frankly, American Mortgage did not partake in the subprime lending. I would imagine it was an, an intoxicating thought because of how many other people were super successful how did you fight off the temptation of that and stay tr- like very clear to your original vision? Because I can't imagine the temptation, and I'm, plus you're probably losing business to it. How did you fight that off? Well, you know, you talk about discipline, you know, athletics, if you've ever played a team sport – you know, discipline is probably the most popular word used by a coach. Yeah. And it and it goes across, you know, across many bounds. You know, discipline is not only don't jump off sides. Uh, it's about committed effort. You know, practice, practice, practice. You know, I play a lot of golf now, and I talk to people that are, you know, good club players that, you know, can shoot 76 to 82 on a regular basis. And, you know, they wonder, you know, how how do I get to that next level? And I was like, you know, you got to practice. You know, golf is a sport. Yeah. You, you can't buy even par in a box, you know. <laughs> I mean, and everybody tries to do that. <laughs> yes, they do. But, you know, you grow up and you play these other sports. And, you know, football, which is my favorite sport, because you practice 16, 18 weeks to play three hours in college with 12 opportunities. So you got 36 hours a year to perform and the discipline that it takes, you know, on and off the field to be a champion in, in team sports, uh, you know, it's, it, it, it's immense and it's a tremendous commitment. Um, when it comes to business in the subprime, you know, we did some of that in the, in the late nineties when it first entered the marketplace and we got burned Fortunately for us, we weren't very big. Uh, we were still fairly regional, if not just ten- state of Tennessee at the time. Uh, and it was only 14% of the overall market. And the overall market was about $800 billion in total originations nationwide. And at the peak of the crisis, what caused the crisis was 2006, we had a $3.3 trillion overall market, which was more than four times what it was 10 years earlier. And Alt-A and Subprime made up 60% of that overall market. Wow. Which is why things just completely went off the rails. But that experience in the late 90s really, when 04 is when 03 was kind of a big refi boom. uh, And then rates went up in 04 and everybody's scrambling for, for margin trying to get a little bit more aggressive product-wise to create more revenues. And um, and I just said, I'm not doing this again. We did it once. It doesn't work. Uh, it's damaging, and I don't want to lose my business being short-sighted. Um, you know, uh, sports, they talk, you know, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah. You know, business definitely is a marathon, not a sprint. Uh, you have to have a long-term vision and a long-term focus and, and a goal. You know, you need short-term goals. You need daily goals. 
but you also need 20-year out goals, whether you're an employee or the CEO. Yeah. Uh, you've got to have, you know, a goal. And, and I talk about oneness of mission. Uh, you know, we wanted to be – we didn't want to be the biggest, but we wanted to be the best. Um, and, and being the best incorporates many different things, and one of those is doing quality product yeah. uh, and having a quality balance sheet and treating our clients right and doing the right thing. And uh, I just didn't feel like uh, in my experience previously that, that it was a good product, that it was going to work. I mean, it was, uh, it's all collateral lending, meaning that they didn't care what your income was, didn't care about your credit, because housing had appreciated for 15 straight years. So you're lending against collateral. You're lending, you're betting that the house is going to continue to appreciate. So even if these people can't afford the home, don't make their payments, if you have to foreclose, you'll take the house, sell it, and get your money back out of it uh, and not lose. That was the gamble. Mm -hmm. And what happened was August of 07, I'll never forget, I was on vacation. Uh, I was sitting out by the swimming pool with my family. And housing depreciated for the first time in 15 years. And literally overnight, the liquidity for those products completely dried up. Uh, and there was nowhere to go for these lenders to, without getting too deep in the weeds, mm -hmm. securitize these loans. So they were stuck holding them with nowhere to sell them. And that's what collapsed a lot of the companies. Oh, wow. Because um, you have what's called warehouse lines that you fund the loans on, they're short-term credit facilities, and then you take those loans and you bundle them and you put them into securities. Yeah. Well, the liquidity for those securities, those all-time Alta and subprime securities, completely dried up. Nobody wanted them. Nobody wanted to invest in that anymore because housing had dropped in value for the first time. So the collateral was losing value, and you're lending against <clears throat> people that with with poor credit or unverified credit. Uh, and so everybody got stuck holding the bag, wow. and uh, that's what happened. Yeah, no kidding. That's a that's a a very profound story in American history for a lot of people. It, it really altered the course of kids that were in college and in high school. Uh, and it really it was a really. Uh, I was surprised that I made it through in the golf teaching industry that time span. I remember sitting at Gaylord at the time thinking to myself, I had just purchased all this new technology and I had just raised my rates. And literally like the first week that my rates went up, a noticeable uptick, the economy just imploded. Yeah. I'm like, oh my God. What? And I, I was benefited by a really awesome winter, like where there was actually no cold weather. <laughs> and I, I was able to stay busy. And then Nashville was able to somehow survive much better than other cities did. Yeah, we, we live in a bubble here. Yeah. Na Nashville is a very unique city, uh, and I've been all over the country. We were nationwide, uh, you know, so I've seen all different – I've seen the macro national market, but I've also seen local markets all over the country, from California to Maine to Florida to Texas. Uh, and Nashville is a very unique place. It's very white-collar. Uh, it helps that we have no state income tax. Um which is why Nashville's growing so much. The biggest yeah. challenge I think Nashville faces is infrastructure, uh, the traffic. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I think that could be managed if it's attacked. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, the old adage, you know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Yeah. 
uh, and I wasn't going to do that again, yeah. uh, even though it was painful. And I, I probably spent four years recruiting my own sales force because they're going out and competing with our client base nationwide, and all these other people are doing all the Alte and Subprime, and we don't offer it. We, we offered one product that I put on the rate sheet just so our salespeople could get in the door but I priced it so far out of the market, we never originated a single loan. <laughs> but it, they could say, we offer this, but we never did any of it. Um, huh. So, you know, I had to convince them that, look, you know, everybody got rid of their FHA platforms. Uh, FHA was dead. You know, Fannie and Freddie and conventional lending was never coming back. And, you know, that's what we were selling. Uh, I think FHA at its lowest point was only 6% of the overall marketplace. Today, it's probably 30 35%. And historically, it's kind of run between 20 and 30 hmm. uh, But it almost completely, and a lot of people divested their platforms. Well, we kept ours. Yeah. So when everything collapsed, people ran to us. Uh, and FHA became a, a mainstream prevalent program again. And we were really good at that. Uh, so it, it really kind of rescued us. And from 2008, 9 through 13, 14, 15, I mean, we did really well. Uh, but we didn't have any legacy risk from yeah. that 04 to 07 period. Uh, and we didn't make a lot of money from 04 to 07. Uh, we, we did what we needed to do. We got by. Uh, we were profitable, but uh, with the amount of risk we were taking, probably not nearly as profitable as we needed to be to justify the risk but um, we were patient and uh, we were disciplined yeah. in, in how we operated and what we were doing. And we were committed to that oneness of mission. Mm. Uh, and we came through it and, uh, and, and really broke out and, and, and thrived yeah. uh, after that. It's really one of my favorite stories because I've used Franklin American Mortgage for three of my homes. And the people there that you've turned me on to were just exactly as you painted it spectacular from Kelly at the door to <laughs> Brian at the close. I mean, it was yeah. just, it was top notch and I'm, I'm fascinated to like, how did golf enter into your, into your life? And I would imagine, cause just hearing this story, it's easy to see how you fell in love with the game of golf. Yeah. Well, let, let me just comment one culture, you know, culture is another thing. That, that is massively important when you talk to, uh, you know, Nick Saban or even what Jeremy Pruitt's trying to do up at Tennessee mm -hmm. or, you know, that Lou Holtz, you know, culture, culture, culture. You hear that all the time. Uh, and if I had to say, if somebody pinned me down and said, what was the absolute most important thing uh, that you did that you think created Franklin American and, and its success? And I would say the culture. Uh, you know, we were suit and tie, professional dress for the ladies every day. Uh, I caved a little bit later in my career on Fridays, mm -hmm. um, but no denim, no open-toed shoes. Uh, you had to wear a Franklin American shirt or top. Um, so I was very conservative in how we approached because my, my thought pattern was, you know, these people are, are going through, for most of them, 90-something percent of them, the largest single financial transaction that they'll go through in their life. Um, and if we can't show up uh, and be professionally dressed and have a professional appearance, 
and show them that we have the discipline to provide that, uh, that makes people feel comfortable. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I just I think that one of the things that you said something about saving that that, that struck me. He recently did this, whether it was a, a speech or whether he was just doing a press conference. He said, "Right now, we're just trying to get the right people on the bus and the wrong people off the bus." And I would imagine, as big as that company was, you probably that was probably one of the things you spent a lot of your time doing was getting the right people on the bus and the wrong people off the bus. It's recruiting. Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing. You know, look. I'm a Tennessee fan, so I'm I, I I when it comes to sports, I'm not. I hope Alabama loses when they play Tennessee. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I'm not a you know I'm not a hater of Alabama, uh, but I'm a gigantic fan of Nick Saban. Me too. I think he's an incredible leader. Uh, he has a desire and a passion that's unmatched. Um, but it's recruiting, you know, even though Saban might be the greatest coach of all time, he's certainly in the conversation, they also have the best players. So when you take the best players and the best coach, it's why they've won six national titles. That's right. Um, or five, how many ever it is. But um, you got to recruit. You, you have to have good people around you. Um, and that's, you know, as a leader, you have to have that edge to you. People have to want to be a part of what you're trying to create. Yeah. Uh, and it's not really about you. You have to sell the vision of what you're wanting to happen, not only for you or the institution itself, but what you can provide for them. What 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 is what does their role look like? How valuable? How much better is their life going to be if they put forth the effort and showed the discipline to do the things that they need to do every single day to be successful? I told our leaders all the time, our number one job is to equip all the people in this organization with the tools necessary every day to go out, compete, and win the game of mortgage banking. My job is to make sure they've got service behind them, they've got a good product, a competitive price, a good work environment. Those are our goals as leaders, not to put our thumb on them and act like we're better than they are or be dictators. Mm -hmm. Our job is to elevate and serve. Um, So... Uh, golf, you know, my brother, uh, one just above me, who's in the ministry, uh, was youth pastor, pastor of a church for 21 years and is now a missionary, uh, was really into golf. And um, when I got out of college, you know, you know, I wasn't playing football and baseball anymore. And so he was into golf and, and uh, you know, I was broke. I was living upstairs with my parents and just trying to back when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do and in fact the first year I was at Franklin American I lived upstairs with my parents <laughs> I made $12,000 was my full annual compensation that year um but anyway <laughs> so awesome. my brother was into golf and he would take me out and we'd play Indian Hills and Old Fort out in Murfreesboro and uh I had the old bubble shafted tailor-made yeah that was like the, the new orange thing. head the orange head yeah, yeah. and uh the Pro V1 had just come out. I had played some with the old Baladas, of course, as a hack, which I was back then. I could shoot in the high 80s, but, you know, Indian Hills and Old Fort. Old Fort's a really good golf course. Yeah, um, but, you know, I could hit the ball from my hand coordination from playing baseball, but I didn't know what I was doing. I hit a big old hook. I'd put the ball in the middle of my stance, come away from the inside, and just hit a big old hook. But anyway, uh, so he was into it, and uh, – Another uh, friend of his who was in ministry, 
uh, had an old set of Ping I-2 Plus red dots. And he gave me those for my birthday because he was getting a new set. And that was the first set of clubs I ever that were really any good. Yeah, uh, I was playing with some who knows what before then, but um, and that's how I got into it. And I, you know, the challenge of the game just right out of the gate was immense. I mean, you you can't ever conquer golf. No, you know, it's you can go out one day and I mean, I can't miss a shot and feel like I can shoot sixty every time I play. And the next day you go out and you can't find the club face. You know, I mean, yeah. it's just the craziest game. <laughs> it really uh, is. You know, so. I call it job security. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. No question. Uh, so, you know, I just immediately fell in love with it, the challenge. And, and it gave me something. I didn't even know you could play in a tournament. Uh, my first tournament, I was 28 years old. And I was playing with a group of guys that I'd met, you know, through work and, uh, we would play a lot, and uh, they're like, you need to I – I was about a four handicap at that time. I was getting better and learning how to play. Mm-hmm. And, um, he said, you ought, you ought to go play in the dogwood. And I'm like, what's the dogwood? I, I was like, you can you can play in a tournament? I didn't even know you could play in a tournament. I didn't know they had amateur <laughs> golf awesome. tournaments. So I was 28. I went out and played in the dogwood classic at Montgomery Bell, first tournament I ever played in. Uh, other than a club, sure, whatever. And uh, I remember being on the first hole, and I, you know, I don't know. I had about a two foot putt. I don't know whether it's par or birdie, or could have been double for all I know. But uh, I remember putting my putter down about four inches behind the ball because I was a, I was so nervous. I was afraid if I put the putter behind the ball, I was going to hit, hit the it. ball. <laughs> so <laughs> that's a true story. Uh, so so I putted all day long from one foot, two feet, with my putter about five or six inches behind the ball so I wouldn't hit the ball. Uh, but, no, I love golf. It's been a, it's been a great pastime for me and, and, again, gives me something to compete at, and, which I love to do. Uh, so it's it's been great. Yeah, so the athletic director here at Ensworth is Ricky Bowers, and Ricky Bowers is really one of the greatest human beings that I've I've ever been around. And one of the first meetings that we had, he was big. He said, I, I get all your technical stuff, and I love it, but I, mean, I want you to teach these kids how to compete. Because in life, you're always competing. You better be thinking about competing, no matter what it is that you're doing, because that's what it takes. So I said, yes, sir. And that think that that's exactly what you've been you've been passing on now, is that even though you couldn't play football or baseball anymore, golf allows us the opportunity to compete on so many different levels simultaneously with yourself, with the golf course, with opponents of better skill, lesser skill, and like it's sometimes the hardest match is when you're playing an 18 handicap and you got to give him 18 shots. Yeah, no question. Yeah, I mean that's There's no question. That's harder that. than taking on Snedeker. That's exactly <laughs> you know, right. That's how I look at it. I played plenty of 18s. I'd rather play Snedeker than that. <laughs> that's There's no exactly question. right. And that's like I, so that's something I've I didn't know that that was kind of what I was already doing anyway. I didn't think about it labeling as competing, but I took what Bauer showed me to heart and then turned it into what has become a job that I had no idea that I'd ever do, and there would ever be a job like this, to teach these kids how to compete against, well, fortunate to have such an awesome amount of great players here now. But really, our best, our best matches are when our orange team plays our black team. And competing is essential to life. And I was 
And now that you've been, you're playing in much bigger events and you've played, you've been fortunate to play with Tiger and Brandt and all these spectacular players. What are some of the things that you've learned through golf and competing that are, you know, could be important to anybody out there listening? Well, competing, you know, that go back to how we started, you know, with team sports. I mean, coaches are constantly talking about you got to compete. You have to compete. Well, to me, preparation is vital and earning the right to win is vital if you're going to be competitive. Mm-hmm. Um, people talk about, well, let's go compete, let's go compete, let's go. Well, you're the only one that really knows whether you're competing or not. That's a great and, point. And competing is not winning or dominating an equal or lesser opponent. Competing is beating and dominating someone that's better or perceived to be better. Mm-hmm. That's where competing really comes in. Yeah. Um, and in order to be able to do that, you have to earn the right to be a champion. And what I mean by that is you've got to put the time in. You know, coaches talk, especially in football, it's all about the – to me it was all about the offseason. How much time am I in the weight room? How much running am I doing? Am I earning the right to be a champion by doing that extra set of bench or running an extra half mile or doing that extra sprint? You know, when everybody else is out – doing whatever they want to do, am I paying the price to be a champion come fall or come my next golf tournament? Uh, you know, I tell my wife all the time, she'll, you know, how are you doing? Are you ready? And I'll tell, I mean, I'll, all my friends will tell, I'll tell you when I'm good. And, and when you don't, you don't, you, you don't want to play me. And then I'll tell you when I'm not good. Mm-hmm. And when I'm not good, I'm not prepared. Um, and with work and stuff over the years, there wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't always prepared, and I couldn't compete at the level that I wanted to, that I was capable even of, of doing, because I wasn't prepared. Either I didn't have the time or the desire. Uh, but in order to be a competitor, you have to earn the right to be a champion, and you do that by practice and preparation and effort. And Because when it gets that right down to it, and you've been hitting balls – for two or three hours a day and you're practicing and you're exercising or working out and you know you've put in the extra time on the putting green and you're coming down 16 17 18 and you're in a tight match there's something inside of you or say the fourth quarter or it's the ninth inning and you there's something inside of you that that is going to be triggered that look you know i've earned this i paid the price I am not going to make a bogey coming in, or I'm going to hit this ball close, mm-hmm. or I'm making this 20-footer because I've earned it. Mm-hmm. I've paid the price to get there. Um, and, you know, business is the same thing. You know, you've, you've got to prepare. You've got to know your product. You better love the people supporting you in operations. You know, you, know, you better be committed to, you know, understanding uh, regulation and regulatory influences in our world especially. Mm-hmm. Uh, how are they going to impact your client? You know, uh, being an ultimate competitor starts with preparation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, you've you've had the opportunity to be hanging around some some of the most incredible athletes of our lifetime. When you, know, you spent some time with Peyton Manning, he's a good friend of mine. Peyton Manning, to me, I've, I've first of all, I was never a UT fan, and I was definitely never a Colts fan. But I was a gigantic Broncos fan. So I went from, like, 
not like him, not like him, don't like him. To love him. I love this guy. <laughs> yeah. And obviously he was at the end of his career, but I thought the thing that was so profound about Peyton Manning was that he demonstrated his true value that it was mis that wasn't fully appreciated when he was the very best of the best. When he led a Broncos team to a Super Bowl, when he was a shadow of his former self. Right. And as soon as he left and retired, that whole awesome team could not function. What makes Peyton Manning so outrageously special? You know, there's a lot of things about Peyton. Uh, first of all, on the kind of the funny, what you see in all these commercials, that, that's who he is. His personality, I mean, he is. It's a he's complete, designed for that. He's a complete jokester. He's, a, he's a, a joy to be around. He's a lot of fun. He's like a big kid. Um, and, and he's a really good athlete. He's not an athlete like Lamar Jackson or Deshaun Watson. Yeah. Uh, but he's a good at. I mean, he's a very big man. Yes. Um, but Peyton was incredibly dedicated. Uh, when Peyton was at his peak, when he was in Indy, we were playing golf. I tell this story a lot. We were playing golf down at the Honors in Chattanooga, and uh, afterwards, he's like, you know, hey, can you come uh, time me? I got to go do some shuttle runs. And this is in May. I mean, they don't even start camp till the end of July. They're they're months away from their first game, and uh, sure, I said sure I will. So we go over to a local high school, and um, the field hasn't been mowed. The grass has got to be you know I don't know two or three inches high, and of course the field's not marked. So we find an old newspaper, an old beat up folding chair. Uh, <laughs> I think I probably had a Coors Light or something with me, so I put that down. <laughs> and we marked off like 40 yards of, of, you know, we walked it off. And and I sat there and timed him for 30, 45 minutes while he did his workout. I mean, and this guy plays quarterback now. I mean, mm-hmm. he, and he doesn't run the ball. That's right. He's a pocket. He doesn't move in the pocket very much. But he was very dedicated and committed to his craft, not just with his mind, but also with his body. Um, and the other thing, Peyton's a tremendous leader. I think Tom Brady's the same way. People are drawn to them. You know, it, leadership is, is invaluable institutionally. And to me, professional football is an institution. Each team is an institution in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And if you have a tremendous leader – whether it's the head coach, the GM, the owner, and really the most important is a player. If you, It's why Tom Brady – Belichick is brilliant, and Belichick has that edge to him like Saban. He's just never satisfied. You know, he always thinks he can be better. He could care less about the trophies. That is not his deal. He wants another one. Mm-hmm. He wants to be better tomorrow. Uh, and that's what Peyton had in him. I mean, people follow Peyton. They follow Tom Brady. Tom Brady, you know, Belichick's a big part of it. But I, th- why do you think all those players that have struggled with other teams in the league, when they go to New England, they somehow fall in line and and toe the Patriot, go the Patriot way? Yeah. Well, that comes from Brady because Brady goes to practice every single day, OTAs. He's always there. And he plays the game like he did when he was eight years old, and he's 42. 
he still loves to play football. He loves to practice. He loves the preparation. And all of those people, the other players and that, they all feed off of that. They follow that. Mm-hmm. Um, and Peyton brought that same kind of desire uh, and effort and commitment to, to winning and to prep. I mean, and, and everybody follows that. Uh, and they knew he was a winner. Yeah. Uh, even when he was a rookie, I think he – tied the record or he threw like 20 something interceptions and uh you know early on in his career he wasn't afraid to throw a pick yeah <laughs> but, but uh, you know but they they could see that it's just in him there's a desire inside of him to be a champion and you can't fake that yeah. Pe- people can, can see through you um and it wasn't about the money you know it was about winning yeah. it's not about the money for brady it's about winning championships uh, and and Peyton, quite frankly, Eli is the same way. You know, uh, that there's just there was a desire uh, that that Peyton had that people just were going to follow, and and that to me was his greatest attribute. Mm-hmm. Um, no doubt, Tiger Woods. You got a chance to play with him uh, at the probably the trail end of his the big dominant run. It was '09. Yeah, and um, I'm. I'm a lot of people can't imagine what it's like to be around Tiger, and especially when he was in his prime. What was that that moment like? We had a chance to play with with Tiger. Oh, he was great. Uh, it was it was me and Peyton actually, and Tiger, uh, just the three of us, and uh, and, and another member. It was at Isleworth down in Orlando mm-hmm. where Tiger was living on, on the property, and. Um, you know, it was he was just kind of one of the guys. You know, it was we just the four of us. You know, on the range, warming up, and uh, went out and you know walked and talked. And he called me old man mostly the whole day. <laughs> I did outdrive him on number nine, uh, which he probably necked it, and I hit it as good as I could hit it, and I hit it past him a little bit. So I gave him a little bit of grief about that. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. But I played pretty good. Uh, but he was just one of the guys. But. Even out there, and Stevie came out, his caddy was caddying for him at the time. Stevie came out about the fourth hole. They were getting ready to go up to Doral. Mm-hmm. And um, they were leaving after the round. And Stevie came out and <clears throat> walked around the last 14 holes with us, who was a super nice guy. Um, but he, he was still a little bit in a preparation mode. Um, and there's just there's a look in those guys' eyes, Peyton, Tiger, Brant, his greatest attribute is just his absolute fight. That guy believes he's going to win every tournament he ever pegs it in the ground. He He's not scared of Tiger, Phil. He thinks he's the best player there, and he means it. Mm-hmm. He really believes that. And a lot of times he is. Yeah. But his belief and that competitive edge – that Brant has, and all those guys. I mean, you can just see it happening when they really get focused. There's just something that's different. You yep. can see it in their eyes, their demeanor. I mean, there's just an edge that very few people in this world have, yep. and that's why they're the best of the best. You know, so I spent a lot of time with Brant, and there was a time when I don't think that he felt like he could beat Tiger. Would you remember a moment or a time in his – Life, because I stopped coaching him in 08, August of 08. Did, 
was there a moment in time where you sensed that he felt like he earned a right to believe that he could beat anybody on any given day? You know, I think we all go through that. You know, I, I never <clears throat> thought that I was going to be, you know, whatever I am as a CEO. You know, I didn't, yeah. I didn't know that, uh, you know, what I was doing, the decisions I was making, uh, you know, the workflow model that I was trying to, I didn't know if it was going to work or not until it did. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think as you knock down pegs along the way of life and achievement pegs, I should say, as you mm-hmm. knock those down throughout life, you gain confidence. Uh, what you do with that's up to you. It can be good and it can be bad. Mm-hmm. It can lead to arrogance and narcissism, or it can lead to humility and desire t- for more. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think along Brant's path, you know, he won the pub links. I mean, he had a great amateur career. Uh, he really dominated on the web to get on tour uh, and he's remained there, I think, since 07. That's right. Um, but, uh, you know, probably, obviously winning the FedEx Cup is huge. But yeah. I think he had it even before then. Um, I mean, it was hard in Tiger's prime for anybody to think they could beat Tiger. Yeah. Uh, but there's also that – you talk about that look and that edge and that you can see it just almost physically – an athlete like Tiger or, or even Phil, uh, you know, or Michael Jordan or, uh, you know, Tom Brady. I mean, you can see that just kind of, and Tiger had that ability. It's not that Tiger, and he's unbelievably gifted and talented, but there are other guys out there that can hit great shots, but the mental edge that Tiger, which we've all seen documented how he was raised with his father, et cetera, uh, that mental edge that Tiger had is unmatched. Yeah. And I think Brant has that too. Um, but I think as he continued to have success along the way, his confidence grew. And, uh, you know, and he's, I mean, she, Brant's won nine or ten times on tour, won the FedEx Cup. I mean, he's, he's you know, a major and a few wins away from being a Hall of Famer. That's exactly right. Uh, and he's in his prime. Yeah. I, I told, I, one of the things I tried to get him to think about, and whether he can see, I'm sure he has, but it's just I'm not involved in it much anymore. Was that at that there was a moment where Tiger was changing his golf swing, and it made everybody feel like they needed to change their golf swing if they were going to try to catch up to Tiger. Tiger was always doing something, and then it'd be like, you know, where he was in 0, 2000 to 2002 is I could say is probably better than Ben Hogan when it comes to outrageously awesome skill from driver to putter. He was the first player to ever be the greatest at every fourteen, all fourteen clubs in the bag. It's the greatest golf in the history of the world. Yeah, I mean that 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 two or three year run there was just incredible. And I sensed that he felt like he needed to do that too. And I'm like, listen, buddy, your gift is that stinking putter in your hand. It's literally repulsive to be on the receiving end of your putter. I've been there. <laughs> is, I've been there. It is so outrageous. You need to stop thinking you need to be Ben Hogan or Tiger Woods and attacking flags that you have no right to go at because that's not what your gift is. Be Brant Snedeker. Don't be Tiger Woods. Don't try to be anything you're not. Do the best that you can do with what you know how to do towards your strengths that you're playing almost every shot in your wheelhouse, not in somebody else's wheelhouse. Yeah. And I know because I, I did a podcast with Ned Michaels, who's also pretty close with Brant. Oh, yeah, I know, Ned. And, and, and he's like, one day, Brant just said, you know what? 
I'm going to hit it into the middle of the green and wait for something good to happen. And that's now his, like his mantra. Because when he starts putting good, he starts hitting it at the flag sticks because he knows he's going to make everything. Yep. And I'm like, buddy, that's how you need to think. And that is, that's so, I love to watch how people come into their own. And he now plays every round of golf. He plays the way he knows he needs to play to win. And if he doesn't win, he knows that he's only doing what he knows he has to do to do it. And if it doesn't work out, he goes and tries it again next week. He takes it less personal than he did when he was younger. Yeah, yeah. He's he's definitely a very mature player. <clears throat> and he also has – Brant's got a lot of guts. Ooh, yes, I mean, he does. those two hole-out shots – one out of the bunker and one impossible shot over a bunker out of the rough. <clears throat> I forget what – I think it was a playoff tournament. Um, and down the stretch at the end of, you know, the season, which is now kind of July, August, mm -hmm. he played great on Saturday and Sunday for a handful of tournaments in a row. Uh, he, he's he got that edge to him. Yeah. And I think he – all golfers are going to tweak and fool around with their swing and – you know, this and that and alignment and this loft and this shaft and, you know, I mean, we all do that. But um, I, I think he's very much – and I think that's why he's really – again, we talked about it already, the putter for sure, but it's his mindset. Yeah. You know, that is his greatest strength. He he believes, you know, and that that's a lot of it in any sport or even in business. I mean, you know, if I'm in a if – if I'm in a – board meeting or in a senior management meeting with my staff back in the day and you know I'm not convicted and I don't believe in what I'm trying to teach or what I'm trying to get accomplished if I don't believe in it they're never going to believe in it mm -hmm. um, and it, it, in golf your CEO COO Salesforce operational person I mean you're everything that's right you're all of it and if you don't believe what's going on inside and what you're trying to accomplish, then you're not going to get there. Yeah. And uh, I think he, that's his greatest attribute. Yeah. I, I learned a lesson from him. I, we've never lost in a team event, Brent and I. So we were playing this event whew, a long time ago and we were winning by five through the first day. And first hole of the second round, we both hit our tee shots into the trees on the right. And I'm pretty hacked off, mainly because he showed up like 45 seconds before he teed off, didn't hit a range ball, and was struggling a little bit. And he gets over there in the trees, and I'm kind of dead. I got one shot. And I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm mad because I hit a bad shot, and I'm also mad because he showed up barely in time to make the tee time. And he goes, Coach, what are you thinking? Said, I don't know, man. I think I'm just going to try to hit this seven and up over the trees as high as I can hit it and hopefully get it somewhere around the green. What are you going to do? He goes, uh, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to chip it right out here in front of the green, and then I'm going to chip it in for birdie, and we're going to roll these fools before it even starts. <laughs> and I'm like, is that what you're really thinking? And it, with this, the, like the look of a, a sniper, yeah, what are you thinking? I'm like, thank you. <laughs> That's a and that's exactly it was the most unbelievable thing because then he he chipped his seven iron out ran it up like fifteen yards short of the green, he chipped it in pointed at me with that that grin that he's got oh, yeah. and we won by fifteen and he literally scorched the place, and it was so interesting to sit back and just watch. Really, it was at that time he was the number one amateur in the country, 
just totally stomp the bejesus out of everybody. And I could, I didn't, I didn't need to help. I mean, I just sat back and can I get your, can I clean your club, sir? Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's so remarkable. But you're right. His attitude and his mindset is literally his well, he's strength. A, you know, he's a professional athlete. You know, there's a reason why he's top 50 in the world. Yeah. I mean, he's a professional athlete. Yeah. You know, people don't, you know, I say it all the time. I mean, these guys go out on tour, even if they are, you know, the, the, the higher end guys that only play 18, 20 <laughs> events a year, they're traveling all over the world. Now with the World Golf Championship schedule, they're China, Mexico, Korea. I mean, they're everywhere. Yep. Um, you walk six ta- six times, in, six days in a row, practice rounds Tuesday, pro-am Wednesday, four tournament rounds if you make the cut, which the good players do. And these guys that play 25 or 30 tournaments a year, let me tell you something. You go walk six days in a row, twenty something weeks a year, and and then tell me that you don't have to be in shape and be athletic to yeah, be a golfer. No doubt about it. I'm just telling you that's a. And the pro ams that I've played in, um, they uh, the pros are always saying, you know, I play a lot of golf, so I can typically it doesn't show as much with me, but you know, the the other amateurs that may be in my group, fourteen through eighteen, they completely. Because they're not used to walking. Yeah, they don't have the legs. Yeah, so the last four holes, their legs go, and the game goes with it. And um, but it's it, you know, I've heard different tour guys that I, in pro ams that I've played in, they'll comment that this is very typical. It happens every week yeah. because you know you guys aren't used to walking. Um, I mean, it's just, anyway. Yeah, no doubt. Well, as we head into the second part of the show. We stopped talking about the things that made you made you great and turn you turn the light on to things that recharged your batteries. Because what it takes to be <clears throat> a CEO of a gigantic company, a great athlete, is draining, and you can't do it all the time. You got to be able to recharge your batteries. And historically speaking, the things that recharge people's batteries are the things that bring a lot of people together for like-minded reasons, like sporting events and sport music events and concerts and, and music itself, and then events that bring people together over food and wine. When we think about your favorite music and your favorite musicians, who are they and why? <clears throat> Let's see. I know without a doubt my two favorite bands are Leonard Skinner and Bob Seger. Yes. I, I'm kind of an old school rock and roll guy. Uh, Rolling Stones, um, and I'm not a big music person. I, I wasn't. I, I wasn't the kid that went to the music store and bought albums or mm-hmm. CDs. I, I've, I don't know that I've ever bought a CD or an album. Uh, somebody gave me the Hootie and the Blowfish uh, CD back in the early '90s when they had that one. Like all ten yeah. songs were hits. Yeah. Um, which you know I like them. <laughs> Darius Rucker's a really cool guy. He loves golf. Yeah. Um, but I'm kind of an old, old '70s rock and roll kind of guy, um, and uh, but not huge into music. I like it, mm-hmm. and I listen. If, if I'm in the car, I'm listening to sports talk. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, when when good music is, I know a lot of songs, and I yeah. can sing along with a lot of them. Yeah, uh, and I enjoy music. I just I don't, I don't put a lot of time and effort into it. Interesting. What's the coolest or greatest concert experience you've ever been to? 
Uh, probably Steve Miller Band, which is another one of my favorite yes. bands of all time. Uh, Steve Miller played at Mud Island uh, oh, in Memphis whoa. back in the 80s when I was in college. And uh, me and my roommate, uh, a good friend of mine still to this day, uh, we we were we we'd find ourselves in a bit of mischief on occasion. <laughs> so he and I went to Memphis to see Steve Miller Band at Mud Island. That was pretty cold. Oh man, that would be awesome. I haven't seen. Well, obviously the the real Skinner ended a long time ago, but right. Skinner keeps playing. I haven't seen them or. Um, Steve Miller band, but I'd love to see both of those because Skinner's got that new <clears throat> movie or something coming out. I heard about that. I haven't seen anything yeah, about it yet. I but just saw it. The I other can't day. wait to see it. Yeah, God, I love Skinner. Yeah, it's funny because you know I'm from <clears throat> excuse me, I'm from Pennsylvania, so I went to Mississippi State, so I got a real good dose of Southern rock pretty quick. Yeah, you know, definitely so in Starkville. It, <laughs> in Starkville, so I mean, it was a, uh, and I, I gained such a huge appreciation for it. Because until then, I was, I was, you know, my dad was a huge Zeppelin fan. So it was like Led Zeppelin and the Beatles. I like Zeppelin. And then I got my own personal taste. I was a Guns N' Roses guy. And then sure. the grunge scene hit. And I liked a lot of those bands. But then I went to Mississippi State. And, like, all these guys that were from Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Georgia, which is where a lot of them come from, obviously, that was a mainstay. And I was just kind of like, I never listened to it. But I, like, I remember hearing this song. I just didn't know Steve Miller sang this song. All right. Obviously, outside of about Freebird and Sweet Home Alabama, right? I mean, give me three steps. That's Skinner. I'm like, God. Yeah, yeah, try. Right. Then you look. Then you pull out their greatest hits. You're like, Oh my God, they sang all these songs. Oh wow. Yeah. So that's that's so true. Uh, wow. You know, Skinner's from Jacksonville, Florida. Yeah, I didn't know that. I was. They were on a news uh, morning show, I guess last week or something. I just happened to be watching it, and they were talking about. You know, everybody thinks they're from Alabama. No, we, we're from Florida. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. What's the the coolest sporting event you've been to? Um, probably the Super Bowls and national championship games. I've I've been able to been fortunate enough to go to a couple national championship football games and uh, been to a few Super Bowls. Um, you know, it's um, the game is almost a letdown. Because there's so much pomp and circumstance yeah. around everything else, and me—I mean, football is my absolute number one love, bar none. I mean, if you told me I could never watch football or never play golf, you can have my clubs. Just watching football—I yeah. mean, I'm—I'm I'm obsessed with it. Um, and I was really torn between coaching and going into business, um, but uh, you know. I lost my train of thought. What, what were we? Oh, the great the, the, you were talking about the bowl games, the Super Bowl. Oh yeah, and the, yeah, and the, yeah. And the, the bowl games bowl. and how they kind of be they can be a letdown. Yeah. yeah, because there's so much, and then the game is only like three hours, you know, and there's so much else going. It almost drains you. Yeah, and then you go to the game, and then it's kind of all right, you know, anticlimactic. But um, it's those are great experiences. You know, after a long run, both in the NCAA and the NFL of kind of blowout championship games, the last handful of years have been some real barn burners, yeah. especially in the, in the NCAA, but the NFL too. I mean, the Super Bowl has gotten a lot better. Oh, yeah. yeah. There's a lot more parity <coughs> in the NFL the last 10 years, really. Yeah. But, you, you know, you're right. I mean, we went through those years where Buffalo was just getting blown out other than the one year where they missed the field goal. That's right. Uh, but then the other three years, they're just getting hammered. The AFC was way behind the NFC. Yeah. And then Brady came in, and, you know, they dominated there for a while. Uh, but, yeah, they, they, 
they've both gotten a lot better. You know, Kyle is just is just such a different animal. It's so hard to, you know, from the Pac-12 to the SEC. The I mean, the the, the athletic dynamic is so different in all of those conferences. Yeah. Uh, it's just really hard to tell until they play one another. Yeah. Um, you know, I look at Ohio State right now. Uh, you know, I mean, they just played absolutely nobody. I think they're the best team in the country. They look the, the best. And they're the most talented by far. Not by far, but they are incredibly talented. But then you see, you know, how is Justin Fields going to respond? How is Day, their coach, how is he going to respond as a head coach in a tough game in the fourth quarter against an LSU or a Georgia or an Alabama in a playoff or a Clemson? Mm-hmm. Those teams that have been there, the coaches have been there, their players have been there. You know, how are they going to – Justin Fields is basically a freshman. You know, how is he going to respond when he starts getting hit? That's right. You know, and knock down four or five times a game, and, and they're in a three-point or seven-point game late. How are they going to respond? And, you know, a buddy of mine's a big Ohio State fan, and, and I – you know, I think it's why the Big Ten struggles a little bit in the playoff because you need to be in those moments. You need to be challenged. Yeah. Um, it creates a little bit of a false sense of security. And then even though Ohio State is incredibly talented, and they may want it all for all I know. I, mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not predicting anything. But I do want to see how are they going to respond when somebody hits them in the mouth. That's right. Because they haven't been. That's right. Um, but anyway, I don't know how we got off well, on that I, tangent. I just think that, you know, there's you hit on something that is so true. Football, generally speaking, is determined in the trenches – even though it's the star running back, star quarterback, or somebody's uber-talented and makes a big difference. The reason why the SEC constantly – and I'm a, I'm a Penn Stater to the death. I now, like James Franklin. Oh, I mean, I, mean, I grew up – I mean, that's where I grew up. Yeah. And I saw almost well, a very large percentage of the games from 83 to 92 when oh, they wow. lost like two times. Right. You know, the, the, that's the difference now – more so than it was then, is the SEC has the best lines, both offensive and defensively, across the board. And Ohio State has separated themselves in the Big Ten in quality of lines. Because they had Urban Meyer. <clears throat> That's right. And Urban knew he took the Florida model, the SEC model, to Ohio, Ohio State. State. And isn't that similar? Like right now, Penn State's got an unbelievably awesome defense. And not a bad offense, but not a national championship quality offense, and it got exposed last week in Minnesota. Yeah, they got punched in the face, and it took them too long. They were coming back, and if there was five more minutes left in that game, Penn State probably wins. No doubt. But that, like to me, the reason why the SEC gets the respect, and I know people hate it all the time, but it's the facts. Why does LSU, Georgia, and Alabama always seem to be in it? Because they have the people in the trenches, they have the depth in the trenches. They just wear you down. That's right. And that is like a fundamental of football that is overseen nearly as much as the four-foot putt, the free-throwing basketball, not so much pitching in baseball, but still it is the number four pitcher for the Astros is a stud. Yeah, and and he's a one on half the other uh, teams. And that's why the Astros constantly – seem to be now that they got this this group of people put together they're deep and they they constantly win the Yankees for the longest time they, the whole team was hall of famers at one point yeah. you know 
that kind of the Braves back in the nineties. The Braves, my gosh, starting pitching. I mean, it's defense. That's right. It's why it's why Saban has been so dominant. It's why people can talk about Clemson and you know uh, Lawrence, the quarterback, and T. Higgins and Amari Rogers and all their receivers and ETN and I, I mean, but. Clemson is struggling a little bit this year because they lost their entire defense to the NFL. That's right. And they lost half of their offensive line. I mean, Clemson is is nowhere near as good as they were last year. Mm-mm. Nor is Alabama. And Alabama is struggling on defense because four big-time NFL, future NFL players on defense are out for the season. Both their starting middle linebackers, their number one defensive end, and an, another outside linebacker were lost in August. They've got freshmen playing all over the field. You know, they're not the same Alabama as we're used to seeing. Now, come January, if they get in the playoff, these kids have got a full year in them. They, they're not going to play like freshmen. That's and right. they should. But LSU is really, really good right now. I mean, mm-hmm. it's the best offense in my lifetime. And I've watched a lot of football that I've seen LSU have. Oh, I mean, maybe yeah. back in the day when they had Dalton Hilliard back in the early 80s. And, and but Harvey they, Williams. Harvey, Harvey Williams, Williams yeah. yeah. Tommy Hodgson. But that those teams weren't very good. I mean, mm-hmm. now they've got a dominant defense. Yep. Uh, they've got an Alabama defense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they've got an offense with a, a future NFL star, in my opinion, Joe Burrow. Yeah. People don't – Burrow is athletic. Burrow will run the ball. Bur- Burrow's tough. Yep. He's a competitor. We've talked about competing. Yeah. Uh, that guy's a competitor. Yep. Uh, and he's got the tools, which is what creates greatness. That's right. So no, tr- That's so true. This is going to be a very fascinating run-up now because most of the big schools aren't playing anybody all year long. And then it comes down to you know, interconference play, and then it, it winds up going into the Final Four. So like, there's a couple of, big, couple of big games to be played yet. And that's going to get come out in the wash, you know. More than likely, LSU is going to stay number one because I can't see them losing to anybody. They got a letdown week coming up, possibly, but I think they're they're locked in. Penn State, Ohio State is going to be a big game because um, Penn State has the defense to to give them fits, and if they have a good offensive week or Ohio State has a bad week, could be that could be the only thing that derails Ohio State. Minnesota then would have to play one of those two for the Big Ten Championship, and if they stay undefeated, that's a compelling story. And that guy's done a great job coaching there, that, too. That guy's – read about him sometime. Uh, he was a heck of a, of a college player. He played at Northern Illinois or played in one of those kind of mid-level conferences. Mm-hmm. Held – still, I think, holds most of the receiving records. Played for the 49ers for a short time and kind of blew up his shoulder. And But they immediately wanted him to coach – when they knew he couldn't play anymore. And he was going to be a marginal NFL player, but P.J. Fleck, he, he's got a great story. Yeah. You talk about a leader. I yeah, mean, yeah. you can just – you can hear him talk and, and just tell that that people are going to follow him. And those kids follow him. I no mean, doubt. Think about the ta- – if you looked at Minnesota's recruiting rankings for the last five years, I guarantee you they're not in the top 40. That's right. You know, and he's getting everything out of those kids. Mm. No doubt about it. So I'm interested to see what's going to happen because I expect Georgia, LSU, SEC championship game. Depend. I'd be interested to see what happens if Georgia beats LSU and LSU is still number one. If that kicks Alabama out for sure, or if LSU beats Georgia, does that put Alabama back in it? They were saying this morning, uh, Greenberg on ESPN. He he thinks that they'll. He thinks that three 
if Georgia beats LSU, that the SEC could have three teams. I don't think the competition committee will do that. I don't think so either. And I don't think they should. I don't really want to see that. Mm-mm. And, I've, you know, we're SEC fans because we live down here. But yeah. I, I don't – you know, I, I, I'd i rather – I want to see some other schools get in the fray. Yeah. Um, I mean, if Clemson stays undefeated, I'd like to see Clemson and the winner of the Big Ten – and if Oregon can stay one loss, because they only lost to Auburn on the last play of the game, yeah. if they can stay unbeaten through the, the Pac-12, I think Oregon, the Big Ten champion, Clemson, and LSU, Alabama, Georgia, however that whole thing shakes out, right. that would be probably what's best for college football. Yeah, it's going to come down, I think, to be – it's going to be an Oregon-Alabama battle because I don't think Georgia can beat LSU. I think Georgia really misses Jim Chaney on mm-hmm. offense. Mm-hmm. Uh, South Carolina's not very good, and they beat Georgia in Athens because Georgia's offense is nowhere near Mm-mm. what it was Mm-mm. under Jim Chaney. That's right. They're struggling. Of course, Chaney's now in Knoxville, at yep. Tennessee, um, and they're they're on the rise. Yes, they're they getting are. better every week. Yep. Um, but I think Georgia misses Jim Chaney, uh, so I, I think LSU will handle them. But you never know. It's the SC. I mean, Georgia's got athletes all over the field. <laughs> and I'll tell you one thing. They're good. And I, I'm not quite in that age group, but teaching adolescents and oh. or young kids, you can have all the greatest game plans in the world, but sometimes they just don't show up. No. Mentally. They don't mentally show up. Well, coaches, talk, they're 20, 19, 18, 21-year-old kids. Yeah, I mean, they're not supposed and, to. And these fans, because you put a helmet on them that has an A on the side of it or a T or – in Alabama's case, a number, and it's a crimson helmet, all they see is the helmet come running out of the tunnel. They're not seeing what's underneath there. Yeah, they don't know what's under the hood. <laughs> yeah, they don't know what's – you know, I mean, I see it with the Tennessee fan base. They see them come running out of that tunnel, running through the tee, and they're thinking it's 1998 every week. They don't see the kid that's wearing that uniform. That's right. You know, they're not – they don't have the talent. Um and again, their you know their girlfriend breaks up with them. They fail to test. You know they've got something going on at home. Uh, they're they're growing up. That's right. But we we put these kids out there on national television and a hundred thousand people watching them. And you know it's it, it's the expectations put on them to me. Are, and I don't. It's just the way it is. Yeah. You can't change it. You signed up for it. You signed, exactly. <laughs> right. and, and there's a lot of benefit to it, That's too. exactly right. But it does, you know, it's good to pause every once in a while and realize that these are just kids. That's right. No question. Another one of my favorite passions in life is wine. And I haven't missed a meal in, in 46 years either. So, I mean, I love to eat. <laughs> you and, say me. And, but, but, I mean, I love wine and, and the wines all over the world. Are you are you big into wine? You like wine? Oh yeah, I, I'm not a. I wouldn't say I'm a connoisseur. I'm probably. I'd say I'm an eight eight to ten handicapper when it comes to uh-huh. wine. What's your uh, fave? We have a favorite region or a favorite type of wine. Uh, I'm a big Napa guy, Sonoma. Uh, I like a little Bordeaux, uh, depending on where I am. Mm-hmm. But you know, it, I've gotten to the point in my life where I don't drink very often. When I do drink, I enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And um, and I it's mainly wine, um, but I, I I like to take my my time off just so my fifty one year old liver can can rejuvenate itself. <laughs> That's right. But uh, I, I like all kinds of wine. 
I love Pinot Grigios, to be honest with you, a lot. Mm-hmm. All my friends know I like a Pinot Grigio, especially in the summer. In the summertime, yeah. Yeah, it's not sweet, uh, but it's not bitter. It's cold. And it doesn't um, taste like butter either, which is nice. Yeah, I can't. I, yeah, <laughs> and it depends on which one you get. I'm a big Santa Margarita yeah. and Pinot Grigio guy. Mm-hmm. Um, I love reds of all kinds. I've been to Napa a numerous times. Um you know, it's my wife is loves her red wine, um, but you know we're more wine with food, yeah, kind of people. Uh, it's like a part of a meal, correct? And that, that to me, that's the because in 1997, when I was a senior at Mississippi State, Mississippi State had one of only four wine appreciation classes in the country, and it was one of only two that you could drink in the class. Wow, Virginia Tech and another school, you had to spit it out. Yeah. So our teacher was a top 100 chef and a top 100 wine taster in the United States. So we go, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm fully admitted, I've talked about this on the show a couple of different times. I went there for the buzz. It, yeah. was, it was a free. At that age, I would have too. Uh, and so the teacher sits down and goes, here's what we're going to do. It was a Tuesday night class. So it was four to seven. And here's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to study a portion of a, a region of the world. I'm going to cook food from that region, and we're going to drink wine from that region, and we're going to start from white and work to their biggest red, and we're going to talk about why and how and how, like the education of how wine and food came together. So I'm like, well, that sounds pretty interesting. Didn't know that I was going to be getting that. So the first one was Italy. So we got this gigantic Italian spread. There's 24 kids in the class, and then we got, Every, I mean, they got it all from Barolo, Brunello to Barbarescos to their white wines and just, and all kinds of wines I've never even heard of before. So there's like 16 bottles and all of this food for 24, 22 year olds, you know, and I'm, I'm like, now the reason why this wine tastes so good, t- taste the mushroom and now let, let, your, let that, let this white wine swirl in your mouth. Now, do you notice the taste, the the taste is different. Like, wow, yeah. Okay, now now have another mushroom after you've had that wine. Now the mushroom tastes different. Yeah. And I'm like, what this is and then we just went all the way through the menu with all the way through the wine. And I walked out of there and I, I immediately said, This is the greatest class I've ever had. Not because it I'm being taught something that is completely relevant for the rest of my life. No question. I was gonna say that. And I immediately, and it was a hard class because I never took chemistry. And we had to discuss from vine to wine. We had to go through the whole process. So we, we drank first because we had to give that about an hour and a half to an hour and 45 minutes for everybody to kind of sober up before we would leave. The second half of the class was we'd start from the vine and we might only get to testing the sugars in that first class all the way until the end where we were talking about the difference between making champagne and making wine and how different that is. I really struggled with the chemistry because I'd never had it before, but understanding fermentation and the whole shebang was really difficult. And I made a C in the class, but it was the easily the greatest class that I took because I learned so much about cultures without having to go to Australia, Italy, Greece, you know, South sure. America, Napa. I was like, wow. And so like my, on, on my honeymoon, I went, I got a chance to tour 
the what would be considered probably the most famous uh, American wine, Stag's Leap Wine Cellars, because they won the, the judgment in Paris and beaten all the big the big dogs. And then I got a much greater appreciation from from vine to wine to understand it is way more complex than just pulling the cork out of something and pouring it into a glass. And I've always found the art of wines very similar to what I have to do in the art of teaching the golf swing is that nothing's going to be the same. What I had to do to make your golf swing better is nothing that I had to do to make Brant's golf swing better. Right. And with you, if somebody was thinking that I have a model and if you two were, if they came and watched your lesson at 11 a.m. and Brant's at noon, they'd be thinking that Virgil's a kook because he doesn't teach anybody the same thing. Which that's what you should do. <laughs> that's exactly right. Because golf, I mean, just go watch the tour, especially the older generation. Bruce Litsky, Jack, Arnie. I mean, these guys didn't swing out of a book. No. They hit the ball in the hole. That's right. Period. I mean, that's... that. but that wine world here, I mean, it's so vast. Oh, yeah. I mean, you could study it for 50 years and still barely crack the surface of that's what right. you c- could know. I think another thing that's fascinating about right now, probably in the last five years versus maybe 15, 18 years ago, is that there are the winemaking processes and the technology and the the vats and the winemaking processes have gotten so good that a $20 bottle of wine right now tastes like a $55 or $60 bottle of wine from 2002. Yeah, no question. There's so much awesome wine out there that it's it's staggering. And that's I'm amazing. a big Stag's Leap fan. We, we actually went there. Uh, it's a pretty cool – have you been there? It's a mm-hmm. little old house, kind yeah. of a really cool spot. Yeah. Uh, had a – dinner and a tasting there uh but anyway i there's so much to it I, even just going and studying napa yeah. and, and we kind of like to go to some of the off the beaten path wineries that nobody's, nobody's heard ever of heard of yet. yeah and they, right. you know they've got one little building and you know a few vineyard few few vineyards kind of out in the distance there and uh, not very big, nobody, and some of the best stuff you'll find. Oh, yeah. So uh, when I went there in 99, Height Cellar. I love Height. Oh, man. Is it That's good? one of my favorites. That is so good. They were about Joseph ready to Phelps blow. Joseph Phelps is also a really good one. Oh, yeah, Insignia. Insignia. <laughs> oh, right. man. It's like a velvet glove with a steel <laughs> fist I, in it. I understand. <laughs> it's so good. I understand. But Heights was about ready to explode, and they were actually in a garage. Yeah. Oh, here, this is our, this is our Martha's Vineyard uh, uh, reserve, and I'm like, I'm in a garage, and I think this is supposed to be an awesome wine. I'm like, I'm drinking, like, that's unbelievable. It's, in, it's probably in every five star <laughs> restaurant in the country now. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, it's unbelievable. And it, now it's a much different experience. Right. Have you what? Have you done many like wine tours out in Napa Valley? Oh yeah, we I've been out there a handful of times. What was the coolest uh, one? Stag's Leap was pretty cool. Mm. Um, Opus is what it is. I mean, but that's a Opus is such a beautiful building. Yeah, the architecture the of that place. The architecture is of that place. I mean, that was that was quite the experience. They went through a little downturn. Their wine wasn't. It? I mean, it was awesome for like up to O two, and then kind of got a drought. Yeah. And boom, they've picked it back up again yeah. with big time steam. Mandavi, Mandavi a pretty cool place. But, yeah, you know, a lot of those places are so commercialized out now. there mm-hmm. now. Um, I guess you know. Visa Tui is kind of a cool little spot to go, and you can get lunch and eat outside. And mm-hmm. 
their wines aren't the greatest, but they actually have a pretty good white zen. <laughs> I love that. When it's about 80 degrees outside. Uh, that's so good. <laughs> I got two more questions for you. Um, I know that you, you mentioned how important football was to you. And talk to us about how inside how it feels to have brought the Music City Bowl here to, to, the, to the level that it is and how involved you were in it and what that means to you personally. Well, you know, like we were talking earlier, I mean, football is so important to me. My my family knows it. My I mean, everybody that knows me knows how much I love the game of football. Growing up here, being a part of this community since birth, really, other than a few years being off to school, which was still in West Tennessee, but um, and and then being able to work with Scott and Toby and Aubrey Harwell and. Uh, you know, just kind of the old guard of Nashville. And those guys really created the bowl. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're the ones, Aubrey and Toby especially, are, are the ones that really kind of got it here back in the late 90s. Yeah. And I remember watching Virginia Tech, Alabama at Vanderbilt, the very first Music City Bowl, and it was sleeting sideways. And uh, there couldn't have been 10,000 people there <laughs> to kind of me getting involved and, and uh, you know, with Gaylord, you know, all the great things they've done. Colin Reed is just an amazing person, a mm-hmm. good friend of mine. I saw him out at the golf club a few weeks ago. And, uh, you know, the leadership and the, and the core of of our town, which back then we were more of a town than we – and now we're a mecca, you know, booming – metropolis it seems but uh and then being able to get involved i guess probably now 10 or 11 years ago as a secondary sponsor and then we took i think we're we're one of the longest running titles in the country now Mm -hmm. um but you know it was great and i didn't really understand the landscape when i first 10 or 12 years ago when we first got engaged and um, you know, Scott Ramsey does an incredible job. He knows that world. He knows all the commissioners. He knows the ADs. He understands the politics of how all that works. And he was really instrumental in helping me understand how we could play an important role, what benefits could Franklin American gain from being involved, and also help me understand so I could provide some sort of intellectual capital to the process and picking and understanding what moves we should make and what level and if we spend this we can get to here and that you know so um when the college football playoff came in we had an opportunity to go from a kind of a lower level birmingham you know independence bowl kind of liberty mm-hmm. kind of bowl to another level and uh but it took a significant financial commitment. Yeah. And, uh, but I wanted to do that. And I, we, we were in a position financially where I felt like we could. Uh-huh. I felt like it would provide some benefit for us because uh, part of it was really endearing ourselves to ESPN, uh, not only for time slot but for promotion yeah. and also helping us ensure that we would get some really good matchups, which was really driven by the conferences and the ADs. But ESPN also has some some impact, you know, with our time slot, which is attractive to the ADs and the schools. If we got a good time slot, if we're the only game on, uh, so eyeballs are on the TV. It's a good promo for the universities. Mm-hmm. 
uh, and all these things Scott, you know, really taught me over the years. And so we had a chance to kind of move up and, uh, we did it the first four years. We were kind of what, and, and we had some really good matchups, but then the, we made a commitment for six more and really going to that next level. So now you got the playoff, the new year six, and then we're in that next level, which is Gator outback. Mm-hmm. Uh, we kind of moved up to that level. Yeah. And uh, and the matchups have been our, our very first year. We had Notre Dame LSU. Yeah, so, <laughs> that I mean, was huge. Yeah, that you was know, huge. So uh, you know, and we had Tennessee, Nebraska. I mean, just story programs that are that are even you know Louisville and Texas A and M. You know, I mean, there's you've got Bobby Petrino and Kevin Sumlin, and mm-hmm. uh, you know we've had some great coaches come through here. No doubt uh, in, in that in that time frame. So, uh, and I'm sure they'll have another really good game this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got really good conference alignments. We're always assured an SEC school. Um, and then you get Big Ten uh, and ACC kind of involved with Notre Dame being in the mix as well, just kind of how all that comes together with the Belk and us and Outback and yeah. uh, Citrus, all that kind of flows together and scott's really good at managing all that oh, that's cool uh, so i would have never guessed it was well it makes sense that espn and and the the eyeballs like the how many people how many different games are on at that time will make a difference but that's it's way deeper well, it's big for the title too sure for absolutely. us you know we wanted to be the only game on so we can maximize the households yeah and the sure. one thing about a golf tournament which we did the lpga from four five and six versus you know, they, well, you get the LPGA for four days in a row. Football's only one time. But here's the thing. They talk about every ball game for a month, month and a half, Yeah. Uh, every night on ESPN. That's There's right. some ESPN channel talking about the ball matchup. So you really get a lot of exposure. And the more endeared you are to, to ESPN as a title, in our case anyway, the more exposure we were going to get because yeah. we were we were also a good client. Mm-hmm. Very true. Last question: You've had the opportunity to compete and play many of the greatest golf courses in the world. Win on some of them. What's the Mount Rushmore of golf courses that you've played? The four greatest golf courses that you've played. Well, Augusta for sure, and not because it's Augusta; it's just a great golf course. Yes. I mean, it's a phenomenal golf course. It is. It's the hardest inland golf course that I've ever played. It's unbelievable. Holy cow, is it hard? No, it's it's, it's really difficult. I mean, there's only there's only 18 flat shots all day. Yeah, if, if you've if you've never been there and all you see is what's on TV, you have no idea the elevation change. That no. second shot at 18, especially if you're playing all the way back, which I'm hitting long iron in there. I mean that that shot is straight uphill. uphill. Straight uphill. It's so severe. Yeah. TV, I mean, it doesn't, you know, uh, Wingfoot West, um, which is, you know, we, me and my partner won the Anderson up there a couple times, which is a big team four ball uh, invitational. Uh, Wingfoot West, and it, it's always, they, people say this, and I'll say it, you could, go put the ropes up and have a U.S. Open at Wingfoot West tomorrow. Mm. They don't have to grow the rock. Yeah. I mean, it's, the, it's one of the hardest everyday golf courses, period. Period. Um, but it's it's a great test. Uh, pars are good scores, even for the best of players. Um, 
but I love Wingfoot West. Um, let's see here. Four of them. Pebble, obviously, goes without saying. It's the most beautiful golf course I've ever been on. Uh, let's see what else. It's, it's quite an amazing place. Oh yeah, it's 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 just so unique and it's so natural. You know, they 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 weren't out there moving a bunch of dirt and building mm-hmm. mounds and you just walk around and they've cut some holes in to a beautiful piece of property. Yeah. Um, you played Cypress Point? I have. What, what's your comparison between Pebble and Cypress Point? I think Pebble, you know, Cypress is, is great. And Cypress has all the hoopla and history behind it and whatnot. But, you know, other than a handful of holes at Cypress, the rest of it's just like a, a golf course. Mm-hmm. Um, Pebble you've got so many different views you know one is just you know it's easy starting home then you get to two and the ocean starts to come into play and then three it's right there four you're right there five six seven eight's the hardest par four in the world in my opinion and the i think it's the greatest hole in the world it is it's unbelievable i think it's the greatest hole in the it's world. Awesome. i love that golf course that uh nine and ten are unbelievable holes i mean that whole stretch uh five five through ten is about as it's it's the the greatest run of holes. No question. Period. Yeah. And Cypress is great. Don't get me wrong. If, if I was ever fortunate enough to be asked to be a member, I'd join tomorrow. But <laughs> yeah. um, Cypress, 18 is a little funky at Cypress because it's, it's always downwind. It's like a five iron and a wedge. Yeah. Uh, but it's almost like they ran out of room. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, Cypress is awesome. Seminole's great. I'd say I'd put Seminole, yeah, Seminole up there too. Seminole is so unique. You can't see the ocean other than 17 tee box, and you can barely see it then if you look over the hedge. Yep. But it's right next to the Atlantic. I mean, it's right off the beach, Yeah. and you don't even know it's there. And it's always windy. If it's not windy, it's very gettable. Yeah. Although they, I think they've built some new tees, but... Uh, I'd put Seminole. I'm a member at Calusa Pines down in Naples and Medalist uh-huh. over near Seminole. They're both great golf courses uh-huh. as well. But um, Calusa Pines greens are a little slippery. Calusa Pines <laughs> is uh, around the. It is the toughest green complexes I've ever played. It is. It's brutal. Mean. It is mean. It is. You mean. better be able to use a Texas wedge. <laughs> yeah. I'm pulling that putter from 20 yards off oh, the green. Oh man, it totally exposes any amount of doubt you might have over if the you shot can't you got. Chip, you just pull out the putter. <laughs> yep. So I had a chance to play Seminole with Mike McCoy. You know Mike McCoy. I know Mike really yeah. well. So I had the opportunity to coach him uh, for a window of time, and he took me down there right before the mid-am, the year that he was defending. Okay. And it was a magical place. That's the first. That's the only time I've been to Seminole play there two times in, in three days. And it was – it's so subtle in its difficulties. That, to me, is what makes your golf course great, is that it's – one day the hole is easy because of the pin placement, and the next day you are just praying. Yeah, the greens are brutal. Yeah, yeah. You, you can, can put it, it. You can put it at Seminole fifty yards off the green. Yeah, like two and three, so elevated. If they're rolling really fast, uh, I played in the Coleman, which is a national mid-am invitational there for a number of years, and the greens were purple. They were so <laughs> firm and fast. Uh, but you know, in the history of Seminole, they've had so many. That's a players' club. 
you know, you've got tons of USGA championships in that oh, club yeah. with the membership. Um, yeah, it's a it's a neat neat spot. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time out of your it was fun. Out of your I schedule to come on here and uh, being on the verge. Look forward to uh, many more great golf stories. You had such a great year this year. A couple of huge wins with two of the coolest and nicest guys, Whit Turnbow and Philip Lee, that there's ever been. And more great success to you. Enjoy this this great run of golf that you have, and I look forward to seeing you soon, buddy. Great, thanks for much luck, man. Appreciate thank it. You. Callaway isn't just pushing the boundaries of driver technology. They're pushing ball speed further than humanly possible. The new Epic Flash driver with Flash Face technology features Callaway's first ever driver face engineered with artificial intelligence. By harnessing this power, Callaway was able to create, test, and refine over 15,000 different faces to find the absolute fastest one. The way speed is created has been completely transformed. Learn more at callawaygolf.com slash AI.